Hi everybody, hope this finds you well. Thank you so much for choosing to listen to another episode of my podcast, Soundtracking, uh, where I talk to the great and good from the film, TV world about their relationship with music, both personally and professionally. Um, it's been a busy old week. I've recorded some really lovely chats with uh, very interesting people. Katie Mulligan, Emerald Fennell, talking about their new film, Promising Young Woman. And I've just hit save on a conversation with Kevin McDonald, who we welcome back to the podcast, talking about his new film, The Mauritanian. That is all to come. I should just do a quick apology if you can hear my kids in the background. I've got every door in the house closed, but for some reason it seems that whilst they're online with their mates, the only way they can communicate is by shouting. However, our latest guest on Soundtracking, I cannot believe I'm saying these words, are a duo that I've been, I mean, stalking is a hard word, but it's very close to the truth uh, since we started this podcast. So it is an absolute thrill to finally get them on. Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross. I can't believe I'm saying those words. And you'll hear that all I wanted to do in this interview was try and, I don't know, impress them would be maybe the right way to define it. Anyway, of course, Trent and Atticus burst onto the composing scene with their score for David Fincher's The Social Network, for which they won an Oscar in 2010. And the trio have since joined forces on Girl with the Dragon Tattoo and Gone Girl. Their most recent work can be heard on Fincher's Mank and Pete Doctor's Soul, which you can watch right now on Netflix and Disney Plus, respectively. Pete, of course, was a recent guest of mine, so be sure to check out that interview if you haven't already. The two films couldn't be more different and had widely contrasting musical requirements, which is testimony to the range of Trent and Atticus's talents. We'll begin with a cue from Mank entitled Glendale Station. How are you? Hey, Atticus. Hello. How are you? Thank you so much for doing this. Our pleasure. Listen, I had the pleasure of um, hosting a Q&A with um, Mr. David Fincher and Gary Oldman the other night. And I mean, to be honest, I didn't really need to be there because their chemistry was extraordinary to, to witness and be a very, very small part of. And it was really great actually hearing them talk about the music and how important it was to this whole film. And I guess we could, if we can start with Mank, that would be brilliant. Thanks, because sure. wow, I don't know, I don't know where you, where did you start with it? Because this was a a very specific ask in terms of 
you know, how authentic David wanted everything around and in this film to be. Hearing him talk about the lengths that he went to, you know, with his with with Ren and Kirk about the sound design on it and and really it being authentic to to the time and with the music was that a, was that a, an exciting prospect in terms of how authentic he wanted things to be and and what he expected and needed from you guys um I'll start it was it was a little intimidating and terrifying at first he called us up to say um here's my next film are you guys available yes of course we'll make time even <laughs> if we aren't and you know, it was it was a brief conversation. It's about the screenwriting of Citizen Kane, set in this time period. And he sent the script through. And our first experience was trying to decipher the script, and it became a little, I'd say, unlike any other project we worked on. It was it was probably the most difficult to understand what the story was going to be. Mm. Aside from the barrage of characters and historical significance of things we weren't that familiar with, quite honestly, it, it was hard to tell how it was going to play, how much humor was involved, how, how playful or how serious or how intense, you know, it was hard to kind of decipher that. And when we met him shortly thereafter for breakfast, and that, that's when he kind of explained, I want this to feel as though it's uh, something found in the archives on the shelf that's been covered in dust. And I'm going to shoot in black and white, and I think we're going to mix it in mono. And we'd like it to feel like it's a companion piece to Citizen Kane. Maybe the score is tip of the hat to Bernard Herrmann. Maybe it's solo piano. Maybe you play against it and it's synthesizers. I don't know. We'll see what you guys think. And at that point, we had about we had about six months before we would have to really start working. And we were in the midst of working on Soul with Pixar, so it was. Enough time that you'd perhaps two nights a week wake up at three and four in the morning, covered in sweat, realizing <laughs> subconsciously you've been worried about how the hell are we going to do this? How, where do we start? I think having having that length of time to let it kind of gestate and consider it just cerebrally, not sitting down trying to write things, but actually trying to think through what might feel right, living with the script, having more conversations with David about how, how it was going to play. We When we sat down, which would have been around a year ago, Christmas time, to start working on it, we thought the idea of it feeling... Uh, related to Herman uh, using orchestral arrangements as a, as a as a palette felt like it would be an interesting thing if we could pull it off
So we started playing around arranging with those types of sounds and that type of instrumentation. And in the meantime, in that last six months, we'd been ingesting music of that era because also there's a big band element we knew was also going to be a big part of it. Fincher sent us a playlist of music that he, if he were to temp, he would temp in. And it was pop music of the era, ink spots, things like that. And we spent a lot of time listening to it all the time in the background. Anytime one would drive in a car or just put music on, it would be music of that era to just let it kind of sink in. When we sat down to start composing, we were pretty amazed. And we're not ones to sit around and go, God damn, what we just did is great. You know, but we were both <laughs> surprised that we could adapt what we can do into a new shape. And it felt like it retained what we do well. It still had an emotional component. It still, it didn't feel like it was a gimmick, you know, which I think we were kind of in danger of, of playing into. Reminds me of uh, not just to ramble on, but well, I'll stop myself. You can ramble. Well, what I was going to say is something I use is we, we uh, years ago, uh, I heard, I'm struggling to make this connect, but to me, it's significant. There's a, a famous band that we admire that plays synthesizers. And yes. they had started experimenting with guitars and drums. And we had a, a friend who's a producer that worked with them. And I was asking, you know, how, how is it? And he said, they're really into it because they've never used those tools before. I'm not sure to the outside world that it's as exciting as it is to them because it's a new thing to experiment with. 
And I think just to put an end to that story, I think what they did do, if you can figure out who I'm talking about, was great. But I, it haunts me when we stumble into new ideas that if we're the we're the kid with the new tool, that to us it's exciting, but to educated ears or people that have that know what they're talking about, it's you know my first day with a electric guitar, you know. <laughs> but this didn't. This felt pretty genuine. Is, is the uh, end of that rambling yeah i was just going to say that the composition or the kind of start of it that trent's talking about which i was very nervous about and then it turned into this fun thing like trent mentioned not to use a stupid word but it was it, it was actually fun and we were working in this way of these three concepts the solo piano big band and the orchestral stuff, but not knowing at that time, you know, these were experiments to send to Fincher to say, what do you think, kind of thing. And, you know, we got this phenomenal response and all caps text, I want to use it all. <laughs> best thing you can ever hope for as a composer, <laughs> especially with him. Yeah. But what was interesting about it was, we were exploring rather than thinking scene specific. Yeah. And then Kirk obviously got the music and just started experimenting against picture. And it quickly became obvious that the big band stuff could drive the studio kind of hustle bustle. Yeah. While the orchestra could really tell the emotional story. That was in front of us and it wasn't strictly you know you can find moments where that isn't exactly adhered to but generally the best thing is when you when you can see and you know like it's early days and it's rough but you see a bit of picture with an idea and you know oh th this actually is gonna work mm. and we ended up demoing the entire film you could play the whole film with samples and whatnot well, there's a it lot was... of music, there's so much music in the film. And it's like it harks back to that old, I remember, you know, sitting watching films with my granddad and, and, and there would be so much music in these in these films. And it's really interesting you saying that because one of the things I wanted to ask was whether there were, if you thought about writing specifically for scenes or characters, but it's interesting you talking about the, the process of how the picture and music were matched. Yeah, our process generally is... Say with Manx specifically, we, when we were experimenting with orchestral arrangements and big band stuff, we'll spend a month or two just writing, not to picture because usually there isn't picture yet. But we have a script, we have a we have a deep explanation from David, and we start to imagine based on the clues and breadcrumbs that he's left. Okay, what what do we think would fit this palette or how far do we want to kind of color outside the lines to see what he'll respond to. And when we send this, this batch out, which this is probably, I'd say 90 minutes ish or so music that we sent him because we tend to compose in four to six minute compositions where we'll, we'll explore just different swatches of ideas that feel like the DNA to us of what we think the movie could be with a range of where it could go. And then, as Annika said, Kirk and David will sometimes temp in different moments from that to different spots. And, and what I mean 
maybe a handful, four or five things that drop in certain spots that greatly informs us of what they're responding to. And, oh, that thing we wrote that feels this way, he's feeling that as X, Y, or Z. And then, and then it pivots into actual composing to picture. But that, that informative first batch always greatly helps, I think, David understand or the director. And because we've done that same thing, we just poured water all over it. We've done that same process with pretty much with everybody. And say for when we did Watchmen, we turned over a ton of music, of which almost none of it ended up being. It let us know this is not what to do. Yeah. Which is almost as useful, isn't it? Absolutely is. You know, because the process, you know, we tend to have a pretty long and involved process, but we were, were happy with where we wound up. It's, it's nice when you get there quickly, but sometimes it takes a few laps around to do it. I think one of the things that helped us going into Mank was we went in confident. We had just finished a cycle of Nine Inch Nails and touring right into Watchmen, which was an intense chunk of time, right into Soul, <laughs> right from Soul, right into Mank. There was enough things thrown at us through those projects that we rose to the occasion and figured out how to do it. When the idea of can you compose all for an orchestra that sounds like it was recorded in 1935 and the rest of the score is an authentic sounding big band that should sound like a needle drop from something of that era, we'd experimented a bit through these other projects and kind of went into it feeling like, okay, if we can compose it, we feel confident we can execute it on that side. You know, we come out the other end of all that, proud of what we've done and kind of amazed that 
somehow we pulled that off and COVID also, also <laughs> set against a pandemic, which kicked in right as we were about to start recording, actually. So that, that added a whole other uh, logistical challenge, one might say. But you did it. That's the incredible thing. You've released this music. So the, the you know, the, the, the scores there with this additional music, which are some of the demos, if, if, if I'm right, that were your... I guess your temp before you did the official recordings with the individual musicians. And it sounds so fantastic. Was there a point where you went, I don't know if we can do this. I don't know if we're going to be able to do this. I mean, it was never an option. It was the film's <laughs> going to finish and we're going to figure out how to do it. You know, yeah. So we knew what we wanted it to sound like because as Atticus mentioned, we these weren't little piano arrangements that, well, when it's arranged, it'll sound it'll make it sound like Bernard Herman. These were meticulously prearranged before the before it went to an arranger. So we, we knew what we wanted it to sound like. Then it just became the logistics of how do we set ourselves up to succeed against this absurd situation that we're in? I, I was just going to jump back one step and say, when you were talking about the moments, you know, which there are many where it's, it has the language of an old cine, cinema and the way that it's attached and it's working. We had this incredibly, I would say, the most intense spotting session we've ever had with David in terms of the detail that he was looking for within certain moments. And as mentioned, so then we go off, demo the whole film so he can watch it and, and we can watch it and start suffering somewhat from demo-itis, you know, because <laughs> we spent a long time making it sound how we thought it should sound. Then we engaged um, Conrad Pope and Dan Higgins, who for the big band who we worked with on Watchmen, and did an, he did a phenomenal, phenomenal job on that, and again for us on Mank. But really, it was take the demos, which have had hundreds of revisions and been approved, then have them do their thing, which also has to be approved by Fincher and often changed. Then finally we get to, I think Conrad might have done a Zoom with everybody. Obviously there was sheet music and the scent. We'd got a, an engineer involved who supplied us with mics of the era and instructions for each musician on how to set them up, you know, and then they'd be disinfected and taken to the next person. The first session was actually, we've got Zooms of it all, and it's insane because it's people 
sitting in their bedroom or their kitchen or whatever and, you know, playing their part. But one of the things, one of the many things that was this challenge is obviously in this scenario, you can't make an on-the-fly change like you would if everybody's in the room. You can't say, oh, at bar 33, let's try X or Y. So we really had to get it right because there was a time schedule and a, and miraculously, you know, and I do mean miraculously, <laughs> we got these sessions back, which we then had to assemble or we had some help, you know, because obviously one musician might read Forte is different to another musician when you're not in a room together. But anyway, hitting the space bar on the assembled session was unbelievable experience. I mean, it really sounded, against all odds, it sounded phenomenal. came about kind of we didn't have a room so we didn't have that sound that you get you know for instance horns playing in a room or whatever and it really became about exploring and trying to kind of take what we'd got and work it to our advantage because normally you wouldn't have every single track isolated and I think in some ways I mean we didn't have any choice but then in some ways I think we were able to do some things that would have been difficult if it had been done in another way. Yeah. I mean, amazing for these musicians as well, you know, in terms of just being given that opportunity to to do this remotely. And, you know, I wonder, I would just be interested as well to at some point get you know speak to them about what that experience was in terms of, you know, visualizing their, their contemporaries and, you know, their, their fellow string players or their fellow horn players. And it, that just that isolation of, recording your part on your own must just be slightly bonkers for them, I imagine. And what seems unbelievable to us is just the caliber of musicianship where these guys could pull this off, where when you, when you put it together, it sounded like everybody together. <laughs> like it, it's just, <laughs> it's amazing to us.
what was radically different in this, just, just a word clarity for us, what was radically different was normally it's the two of us in a room crafting a piece that we're bouncing back and forth with Fincher or whoever we're working with. And when it's done, it's done. We, we've played it. We've sculpted it. We've tweaked every little bit to swell and do that thing that's not generally right, but it's, it's exactly what it is. We're, for the most part, our own music editors. Uh, and then we're off to the next thing. And we might revise that as the film starts to get loose frames here and there and the cut tightens up. But there is no stage for us. It's usually that's the end of the process. You know, this time we still went through all that using samples to get it exactly the way all parties involved wanted it to be. Okay, now let's turn that over to an arranger then get his demos back, then go through the same process again because they sound different. And then tweak, 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 and revise, revise. Okay, now let's send that off to individual people to record separately and get that back. And now let's go through the revision process of how we're going to blend and mix and edit that. I mean, if there hadn't been a pandemic, it would have been a different process for us. I think (laughs) adding the pandemic hurdle, the pandemic challenge to the mix was... uh, (laughs) At that point, it was really like, we were like, okay, what else can happen? <laughs> yeah, you know, back up the hard drive. Why would we do that? Um, <laughs> I said to, um, to David the other night, I was like, I can't wait for the moment where this, um, we can have the opportunity to, to see this on a big screen with a live playback of the music, you know, in terms of having an orchestra. The idea of having an orchestra play this music live whilst the film's playing, I just think would be mind-blowingly extraordinary that'd be great i think that'd be great good idea yeah be amazing i'll see you there how did i (laughs) how did um i know you did so before this but i had such a lovely time uh, chatting to pete doctor what an amazing man he is he's his enthusiasm for his craft i mean david's enthusiastic as well but in a very different slight of slightly more kind of dark comedic way and whereas Pete's kind of got a bit more sort of he's just this ball of energy and enthusiasm and what was the appeal for you with with working on this project both in terms of with Pixar with Pete but also with John as well you know this incredible jazz musician and what was the 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 appeal to to this particular project for you both? Well with Pixar I mean this is a story we've told before but we had at one point made a list of dream collaborators and Pixar was on that was at the top of the list and my favorite Pixar films have all been done by Pete Doctor and he didn't direct Wally but he did write it so he can make a film that simultaneously has the adult weeping and the child having fun you know what I mean and I think um, how it came about was was actually through Ren, who I don't know if you've spoken to for this, but he he works with Fincher. He mixed Mank, and he was working. He also works with Pete. Oh, I didn't realise that. Yeah, so Pete had had this idea for a film, and I don't know if Ren was whispering in his ear or how it came about, or maybe he was asking Ren, you know, do you think they could do positive music? (laughs) I don't (laughs) know. I don't know. But the point is, to answer your question, we absolutely wanted to work with Pixar and specifically Pete. We didn't know 
what it was, you know, early on when we got the first call. We didn't know John was involved. But, you know, once it unfolded, we did know it was a story, a kid's film about death. We knew that. And that was about as far as it went, which sounded great already. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. The first, like, three minutes of Up, you know, when you see that montage of their entire life together and then literally by with the first three minutes of that film, I was in bits, you know. It's like he's lost his love of his life. I'm like, where are we going from here? But Pixar just have this ability to approach darkness and light in a way that's just so incredibly powerful through animation. And like you said, when you spoke to Pete, he doesn't seem like a guy with a lot of existential angst, <laughs> but clearly it's in there. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah exactly. It's, it's inside out as well. It's like, what a genius film. It's just, they're so, they're way too clever for their own good, really. What did you, where did you start with it? With the, in terms of, you know, you said you didn't know what it was about. You didn't know, you, you know, well, you knew it was about, you know, a story about, death but what do they tell you and what do they what are the conversations that you have in terms of what you start writing for <clears throat> with soul we were we were involved years before we needed to be <laughs> <laughs> and i think it was uh what that filled us with was a, a sense of um maybe we need to give comfort and prove ourselves a little bit that we can work in this medium in this field and uh, in this out of our comfort zone let's say you know we had an outline of what the story was going to be and, and at some point we got an animatic you know a very crudely drawn entire full length with voiceover and temp music kind of experience that was surprisingly articulate and, and able to really convey what the film at that time was going to be in place of a script and I think initially it was kind of it was kind of set up so you guys are going to work on the various planes and a lot of what happens in New York and the jazz music will be handled by we think we're going to get John Batiste great and at some point those worlds worlds will converge and there'll be some overlapping of um, composition and. So for that first, I'd say the first year, it was really kind of, and we were doing other things at the time, but we, we were thinking about, you know, what did these other planes, the great before, the great mm. beyond is what we were calling the different areas. Um, what, what do they sound like? What kind of feel do they have? And, and there wasn't, there was a few examples of what animation could look like, but that wasn't even decided yet. You know, it was the challenge of, how do we make something that emotionally kind of feels right, but has the the correct perspective of awe and and wonder, but in uncertainty and perhaps anxiety and perhaps dread? You know, there was a lot of time spent, and we started working on the film chronologically pretty much. So as soon as Joe falls through the manhole and winds up in a black and white world where he's realizing he might be dead and a lot of spirits are getting sucked into a bug zapper in the sky. <laughs> you know, there was a lot of talking about how, how should that feel? And that's probably where the context of it being a Pixar film came to the forefront of, you know, we don't want to scare the shit out of little kids who, you know, what just happened, Mom? Well, he died. Yeah.
and so we that became kind of the starting point for us to understand what the film would sound like and what instrument choices we'd make, what our process would be internally. And we got off on the wrong foot, you know, for a good couple months. We, we wrote some pretty terrible stuff. And it was us imitating what we thought a Pixar movie would sound like, you know, as we learned our process. It was one one uh, Friday evening, I remember, it was time for us to kind of hit the hit stop and say, this sucks. <laughs> <laughs> what, what are we doing, man? This, you don't like, I don't like it. You know, you don't like it. We're bullshitting each other. This is, just, we're just, and we spent weeks and weeks, a couple months uh, on things that were not true to ourselves. And, and again, that's part of the process though, that leads us to a place where we uh, find the right way, mm. you know, and, and we knew we had enough rope because we had nothing but time at that point. And did that, you know, those worlds you talk about, those worlds colliding, you know, the musical worlds colliding and stuff. Did that did that involve a, a collaborative process between yourselves and John at any point? Yeah, initially, once John was brought on board, we met, we met in person, we all kind of talked and just quickly established a sense of openness and, and respect and said, let's just share our work. And as we as we start chipping away at our separate little homework assignments, let's just keep abreast of what the other's doing and kind of have some idea of how this is all going to work out. And I'd say 50% of the way through working on the film, when we had now established the palette and the approach and felt good about it, we had started by let, let's figure out what it's going to sound like and what style it's going to be. And let's put off some of the emotional heavy lifting elements which come later in the film the, mm. the epiphany moment you know oh, stunning for example Let's save some of those that's going to require really emotionally tuning into this thing until we know what tools we're going to use, what instruments we're going to be reaching for. And that's one of those is the one that overlaps specifically with John. So we said, hey, we have a few candidates for the architecture of a, a piece of music here. Are you responding to any of these? And if so, can you come in and make it your own within that container? Everything really fell into place. You know, there was, there was no shortage of, you know, um, fine tuning every minute detail. But conceptually, it, it's easy and it's it's not worrying to finesse things endlessly. 
the concern comes when do we have the right clay to work with? You know, have we started in the right spot? Have we got the right piece? Those moments of confidence came pretty easily throughout Seoul, feeling like this is the right thing. We can chisel it and make it a little more purple or green or whatever, but we know this is the right place to be starting. process for us seeing Pixar seeing how Pixar worked uh, works being welcomed into the family being up there you know and checking out their campus and seeing how they they, they all kind of have a, a Pete like enthusiasm you know kind of in a good way childlike they love what they're doing they're very sharing and open and collaborative and it's the kind of place when you when you visit you go yeah I could <laughs> I could work here. This would be a good place to have to come to, to hang out, you know? Yeah, exactly. If I'm having a really bad day, I'm just going to go and hang out. I'm going to go hang out at Pixar for a while. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But it was, it's amazing. I read as well that you said that, you know, in terms of being welcomed into the family, that you'd obviously kind of nailed it in terms of what what they were looking for to the point where, you know, Pete's calling you up asking what you think of you know, the, the process that they're at with the film in terms of, you know, the, the story and the animation and if it's working and stuff as well. That must be an amazing thing to, you know, to see and hear. No, it felt, it felt, it felt really good. You know, like when you work on these projects, you know, scoring is still a new thing for us. And it's still something that we are filled with wonder and we're learning an incredible amount in every everything we do. We we are far from feeling like masters of some domain. And when you go on these journeys with these different camps of people, you know, like like the Fincher camp couldn't be more different than the Pixar camp, with the similarity that they're both driven by excellence. And you feel like you have to run to keep up. And and that feeling is uh, intoxicating you know that that that's why we do what we do we've talked about this because you know as we found ourselves 10 years ago with social network and everybody think it's great and winning awards and that was the last thing we'd ever imagined was going to happen it led to different offers and and at some point us having to sit down and say well, what are we trying to do right now are we trying to prove to the world we can score every type of film in the world or are we trying to take on quantity are we trying to make be, get rich doing this are we trying to why are we doing this what's the let's hit the pause button for a second and it really came down to just that sense of um doing your best work in these finite little intense episodes mm -hmm. say, say as opposed to nine inch nails which is a lifelong effort to go off on a six-month, one-year journey on working on an intense project with an intense group of people that, that you may not then see for years afterwards and leaving it all on the table and good days and bad days, you come out the other end changed and improved usually. 
and sometimes just filled with desire to, I can't wait to go back to what I actually do, my real job, Nine Inch Nails, <laughs> you know? It's really been a nice way to gain perspective and inspiration. And we're trying to be around people who want to do excellent things. I was really interested to find out, actually, if the, if the composing work had in, inspired or influenced the Nine Inch Nails music you've made from that point that you really started to hit the ground running with the composing side of things, both in terms of the the songwriting, but the you know the the production and yeah, if it's if it's inspired or influenced in any way, I guess. Well, for me personally, the realm of music is so vast and so filled with wonder and mystery as to where it comes from, as well as the endless techniques and amount of knowledge that can be learned, you know, and is yet to be learned. I had found, you know, having done Nine Inch Nails for. 30 years, you know, somehow, as grateful as I am for that, and I am grateful, there are times when I have to remind myself, hey, this is pretty great being able to do this, you know, not having to go do something that sucks to to feed myself and my family, you know. We found that by having this parallel life as composers is just made everything fresher, you know, and the amount of learning and immersion and how humbling it can be that you you learn things that keep that magic of uh, music alive and keeps the, you know, I can't tell you how powerful it is to hear something you've written, watch it against picture and experience something that's been profoundly affected by the music you wrote is, is a great feeling. It's, it's um, super invigorating. And ultimately yeah. I think, you know, it's like man and soul sound completely different. But ultimately, what we're trying to do is the same thing in service to picture and convey the heart of the emotional story. It's being able to put and reach inside yourself to convey one's interpretation of the story on a kind of musically emotional level that I think keeps us coming back, you know, because it's world building you know, like the bit we were talking about that we always do at the beginning, it's trying to find the voice of the film much in the same way as we might spend ages trying to find the voice of an album. You're shooting for something that feels like it's part of the DNA, that it can't, one can't exist without the other. You know, if you see the film, you'll think of the music, hear the music, you'll think of the film. I'm not saying we always succeed at that, but I think in terms of, one feeding the other music is music and then we work in a fairly kind of you know like I've got friends who are writers or whatever and you know they'll say it's not about waiting for inspiration it's about sitting down and writing and we tend to just work 11 to 7 every day regardless I mean this is pre-pandemic just because it's that kind of you know, it's a voyage. It's like a voyage of discovery. I mean, there's no end to music. And I think that the films, just the natural kind of process of always being in that kind of creative routine, of course, one's going to inform the other just because of the amount you learn or even has been the case where you're just so fucking sick 
It's only happened a couple of times. It's so desperate for it to end so that you can dive in. That's that's been very, very rare. But it has been experienced. I um I had a wonderful time last night in my kitchen when everyone else was in bed dancing around to the social network score. What a fantastic album that is you know it's a piece of music you know taking it with the visuals obviously it works brilliantly but just listening to it sonically and kind of losing yourself listening to that it is a phenomenal piece of work and it was so lovely to get to be reminded about it you know coming to chat to you guys today to to go back and listen to it it was oh man it's such such a great piece of work And it was interesting that I listened back to an interview that I'd done with with David a couple of years back, and uh, him talking about that and about the the you know the film was kind of almost pretty much cut and stuff when when you guys saw it. Can you remember what you connected with when you when he when he showed you it? Yeah, it was um, just a brief bit of history. He had been reaching out to us to see would you be interested in scoring my next film, and mm. it happened at a point where. We'd just been touring for a long time. I was burnt out. I just promised myself I'm going to take six months off. I was getting married. It's like, I'm going to have some my time. I'm not going to, you know, I'm going to learn this word called no, and I'm going to deploy it occasionally. And he asked, and it was like, oh, man, I, I would love, I love David Fincher, and I would love to do it, but I really don't feel like I'm charged up enough to take on something I don't know at all how to do, you know, and it wasn't the subject matter or anything. I was just like, I, you know, I feel like I need to lay down for a week. You know, I can't, I can't imagine. I don't know. I don't know how to score a film and I, and I don't want to fuck your movie up in, in a state where I can't feel like I can even really kick into gear, you know? Mm. So I politely declined. And then of course I felt like shit for the next <laughs> <laughs> couple months because I, I can't let it go i can't i could pretend it doesn't affect me but i would wake up every day feeling shitty about it and I, I let him down so those hot sweats again was, in the middle of the night yeah it was <laughs> so i finally 
I, I wrote him a note. I said, this was after the first of the year. And I said, look, hey, once again, I want to reiterate, it wasn't you, it was me. I just was burnt out. And if there ever is another project, please consider me. I've gotten some sleep. I feel in immediately the phone rings. It says, come on over. I'm still waiting on you to do it. So, you know, the bluff was called. And so Atticus and I went over and we saw, he had an edit of the film. It had been shot. We knew the script. We saw maybe 20 minutes or half an hour or so of it. And he goes, you get the idea. Because the one time Fincher's at his most vulnerable is when he's showing stuff that, like, he can't let you watch. It's like, okay, this is going to be, uh, th- th- don't worry about that thing up in the forest. Like, just shut the fuck up and let's watch this thing, you know? Like, I know that feeling. You don't have to do it to us, you know? So the ride home, we were in the same car, Atticus and I, and we are like, oh, my God, what are we going to do? Because there, there isn't even room for music. It's just dialogue, you know? <clears throat> but anyway, we spent some time thinking about it and and came up with that same strategy that we still deploy which was let's just write some music that feels like what we think is emotionally happening in the movie i don't know how to score a nine second piece of music where someone walks out of a door and goes up the stairs mm. but i can relate to the character of mark zuckerberg in here i hate even saying the words with what how the world is right now but i mean yeah Aaron Sorkin's Mark Zuckerberg, someone that thought it was worth trading everything for this, something that would prove themselves. I know that feeling. immerse ourselves in emotionally what we thought was happening and wrote a bunch of music to say hey does any of this sound like it's in the right and we and we got the equivalent of one of those all caps texts you know (laughs) check it out i cut some of it into this film and when we saw just a few pieces dropped in it was incredibly powerful
and it was a it started what became one of the most important few months of my life in terms of creative excellence. The closest I can relate to is I'm a college dropout. I went for one year. I was a failure. I went to have a real career, you know, because I grew up in a small town where you're not going to be music for a career. So I went for computer engineering and I was taking all calculus classes and I, and I lasted, we had trimesters. And after the second one, I knew, fuck this, I'm definitely not coming back. So when <laughs> I hate everybody in the school and I hate myself, I'm just going to take what I want on the last trimester. So I got in a uh, music theory class. It was only for music majors that had all these other credits. And I didn't have any of those credits. And I talked to the professor and he asked me a couple of questions, which I answered correctly. He goes, okay, you can sit, you can come to this class. It was four people. And I remember if I leaned forward in the chair, I had to tilt my head. And if I concentrated as hard as I could, I could almost keep up with what they were talking about. <laughs> but I had to be 100% present and I really had to apply myself. And that, and that feeling of exhilaration, can I, can I do this? Yeah. That's what it felt like on social network. You know, like I remember first day, what's a reel? <laughs> I don't, what's the stage? Is that a place? <laughs> no, that's what, you know, I don't know any of this shit. I can't, I can't let on. I don't know it. Or yeah, it totally. <laughs> oh, it's the best way to learn being in it rather than knowing it. I think totally. Yeah. If you screw this up, you're going to ruin <laughs> David Fincher's movie. All right. <laughs> I don't want to be that guy, you know? Yeah, you don't want to be the guy as well who gets the text that isn't in capitals the whole time as well. That's bad news. But even like just putting on last night and that, you know, that opening hand covers bruise, that opening track on the soundtrack and you're just, it's, it's, it's so transportative as a piece of music. It's just, yeah, it's amazing. Before we run out of time, and um, the other thing as well, which made me laugh, was when um, he talked about Gone Girl, and he told me a story about he'd gone for a massage, talking about needing some time out and to lie down. And he called you and said that um, he said he wanted your version of of spa music when he said for the music for Gone Girl, because he was kind of in his head, he couldn't quite work out what he needed, and then he went for this massage. And he was like surrounded by this kind of slightly eerie, dark kind of music that really wasn't making him feel relaxed at all. And he said, and then I spoke to, to Trent and I said, I think I need your version of spa music for this film. Do you remember that conversation? I remember. I mean, I think actually it was the insincerity <laughs> of the music that he 
that he, you know, that yeah. would go and then it could curdle into. <laughs> but what was funny was it, it the band, because we found the actual music that he was listening to <laughs> in the spa. <laughs> and they are called the spa. No. It was it was something like that, wasn't it? It's, it was like it's called the band's name was I'm pretty sure it was Spa. It was like that shit you find on Spotify playlists of you know, <laughs> mood music where they don't want to pay anybody. So it's like a computer yeah. just pumps out bullshit. It was, in the, <laughs> yeah. it was in the world of that. Um, and listen, I wanted to end by, by saying thank you, but also just, you know, when we started talking about Mank um, and then you talking about Herman's side of things as well. And Atticus, I think I heard you reference Taxi Driver as being one of your, you know, big influence or or you know in terms of score music and things I've been a big fan of that particular score and I guess kind of how full circle it must feel to have created something that is in that vein I guess you know and, and such a wonderful kind of um made with such heart I think I mean I love Taxi Driver I think the context was like to me that that achieves everything a score possibly can in the sense that I can't hear that music without thinking of that film and I can't see a moment of that film without thinking of that music. You know, they're indelibly linked. I think our goal is always that, whether we see it or not. But this was an incredible journey and it was an incredible experience. And it was like many things in my life, like I'm not someone who has a lot of expectations. (laughs) So just the idea that suddenly, oh, you're going to be creating a world of you know, the late 30s with the greatest musicians in LA with music that you've put together in a, you know, that's, it's it's mind-blowing. Listen, I hope that that list of, you know, and you still have a list of people that you you want to work with because, you know, it it feels like your music has, has... has uh, you know has been around so many of the films that I've loved over the last ten years, eleven years. But I'm really excited to see what what kind of comes next. So I hope that list is very long in terms of you know who you guys want to work with. We're just waiting for him to call us back. Yeah. <laughs> or reply in capitals on text. Calls are all the calls have been placed. Yeah. Um, listen, I really can't thank you enough for your time um, today. It's genuinely wonderful get the opportunity to speak to you about this and these two films are just like you say they're they're so different but but in terms of the filmmakers coming at it in terms of the passion that they have for their for their craft and you can see that in what you guys do as well it's brilliant thank you so much for your time Trent and Atticus really appreciate it it's been a real pleasure thank Thank you very much take care and stay safe gents we'll try our best same to you
From the score to Gone Girl, that's Sugarstorm. Rounding off this latest episode of Soundtracking with Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross. Definitely some warped spa vibes right there. My huge thanks to Trent and Atticus for taking the time to talk to us. Also to Steve Barnett for sorting out the interview and getting the audio across to us. Mank is available to watch on Netflix with Soul on Disney+. Plus. Now you can head to edithbowman.com. In fact, we've just launched a shiny new website and that's where you can find all of our previous episodes. That's edithbowman.com, including my chats with Pete Doctor, Lee Unkrich and Dan Scanlon from Pixar. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. We are at Soundtracking UK and please feel free to share our posts to help spread the word. I also put together a regular show on YouTube as a companion piece to this podcast and you'll be able to see Trent and Atticus up there very, very soon. Next up, really thrilled to bring together the director, writer-director and composer of a brand new film called Luxor that stars the fabulous Andrea Riseborough. On next week's show, we have writer-director Zena Dura and her composer, Nascar Linares. I very much look forward to the pleasure of your company then. 